0: Hey, Kevin here. So excited to say that we are so close to having new episodes of Philly Who here in your podcast feed. We are currently in production on some of the newest and greatest Philly stories that we are excited to share with you. And in the meantime, we are revisiting some of the other Philly stories that we have shared over the past three years here on this feed. Today, we are going to be revisiting the story of Judy Wicks, who is a farm-to-table pioneer in the food industry and here in Philly. She created the White Dog Cafe, which is still a thriving restaurant in University City. And the story of how she created this restaurant in a time where there was no such thing as farm-to-table is incredible. So please enjoy this retelling of the story of Judy Wicks.
1: The Eskimos were really the happiest people I've ever met. Um, they're always laughing and telling jokes and smiling. And it's not about belongings. It's about belonging. You're
0: listening to Philly Who, the podcast that tells the stories of the doers, thinkers, and performers of Philadelphia. Philadelphia. My name is Kevin Schmidlin, and today I'm talking with Judy Wicks. Judy is the founder of The White Dog Cafe, a restaurant in University City that she started in the first floor of her house in 1983. What started as a muffin shop quickly grew into a renowned 200-seat restaurant that was among the first to feature farm-to-table local food. In this episode, Judy will share how before starting White Dog, she and her then husband opened Free People, a general store specifically for people under 30.
1: We really didn't know much except what we wanted to buy. So we bought all those things and we were the same age as the college students and that's what they wanted to buy. So it made sense.
0: The store would find quick success, but as a woman, she wasn't being taken seriously. So she left the business and her marriage and literally crashed the restaurant industry.
1: Uh, There was a man walking down the sidewalk and he he said, oh, may I help you home with your bags? And I said, no, I've just left my husband. You know, my bags are packed and I have to keep going. But now I've had to find a job to pay for the car. And he said, well, I work in a restaurant and I know there's an opening as a, as a waitress. And I said, okay, I'll take it. She would become a community
0: and sustainability leader for four decades. And here she'll share what we can do to ensure a happy, healthy Philadelphia.
1: You know, it's a joy to know the butcher, the baker, and the and the ice cream makers, you know, to know who sews your clothes, and know who bakes your bread and bruges, your beer Um, these are the foundations for happy community life all this
0: about judy wicks her philly story and how she's strengthening local economies right now on philly who stay tuned and yes there are a couple of curse words in this episode So Judy Wicks pretty much pioneered the farm-to-table restaurant movement and was using local ingredients at her restaurant as far back as the 1980s. And it's not always mentioned, but Judy also made it a point to pay her employees a living wage well above the minimum. But what's even more impressive about Judy's conscience as a businesswoman is her success. She not only had the courage to stand by these principles, but also proved that they can still be maintained in a competitive, profitable business. And while she didn't enter the food industry until her mid-20s, these community-driven values date back to her upbringing in a small town in Western PA, where she saw from day one how a small business can impact a community.
1: I would go with my mom to, say, the butcher shop and witness how the butcher would ask how the steak was last Saturday night, and he knew what what, uh, farm it came from. And um, so I I saw the role of um, that small business owners play in community life. Uh, the, the owner of the grocery store would have a Christmas party every year and uh, for the whole town. So it was important to me, I think, to uh, be able to witness how local business ownership is kind of the backbone of, of, of a community.
0: Before you left town, did you think that you would become a business owner yourself?
1: No, not at all, Because uh, mostly because I was a girl. Um, and, you know, back in the... 40s and 50s, uh, it was not really thought of as an occupation for women to go into business. And no one in my family was in business. You know, my father was a lawyer, my mother was an elementary school teacher. Um, and that was, you know, a common job for women would be teaching elementary school or being a nurse or being a secretary. Those were the kinds of examples that I saw. Mo- most of the women in our community were housewives. Um, and um, so I, I really didn't have. Uh, role models of um, women being in business. I, I never even thought of it. And I was never really interested in, in money. I uh, was more interested in art and enjoying life, I guess. <laughs> I really wasn't career conscious. So in
0: the time, did w- once you did graduate high school, what was your plan?
1: Well, when I graduated from high school, I, I went to college. Um, and that was always the plan. My parents both went to college and I was just expected I would go to college. I never thought of anything different. Um, and uh, I was an English major in college, and uh, which I figured would happen because I was had an interest in writing uh, when I was uh, ever since I was a little kid. And so my dream was to someday be an author, and so I I became um, an English major in in school.
0: And then after graduating school, you went to a place that you probably didn't expect you would go, right? That was when you went off to Alaska? Exactly. Now, how did that come to be?
1: Well, uh, it was during the Vietnam War. Um, I got married to my childhood sweetheart uh, as soon as I graduated from college. And um, because uh, he lost his draft deferment and not being in college any longer, we had to have a plan to keep from being drafted.
0: Right. Neither of you wanted to take part in the Vietnam War, correct? Correct.
1: We were opposed to the Vietnam War. Yeah. So the Peace Corps or VISTA at that point were draft Um And it, it took a, a lot of time to get into the Peace Corps. It was a lot harder to get into the Peace Corps. Um, so we decided to go into VISTA. So uh, we applied and requested a large eastern city. Um, we were accepted and sent uh, t- uh, for training to be in a, an Indian reservation in the west. So while we were in training, they asked for volunteers of a married couple that would be willing to go uh, to an Alaskan uh, Eskimo village. We had originally wanted to go to an eastern city anyway. (laughs) We thought, well, as long as we're going to uh, be in a village, why not try out an Eskimo village? It sounds kind of different. So we volunteered, and off we went.
0: Was it an immediate decision? Did you know right away, yes, let's do that?
1: We were in an auditorium of young people our age that were all training to go into, into Vista. Uh, there must have been maybe 100 people in the room. Um, and then they, they asked for volunteers to go to Alaska. And my husband and I just looked at each other and we kind of nodded our heads and put up our hands. <laughs>
0: <laughs> just like that. Just like that. Wow. So then what was day one like in that village?
1: Well, I can remember um, taking off in a a, a little airplane um, from someplace. I guess it was Bethel. We flew to Anchorage and then from Anchorage to Bethel, which is the closest kind of um, city to the Eskimo village. And then uh, in Bethel, we loaded onto a small um, uh, plane that would fly us, you know, to the Eskimo village. And I can remember it was in the summertime and, and the plane had skis. It was on a, a lake. And so I can remember I was in the front seat and my husband was behind me um, with our luggage and whatnot. And we took off on the lake and we were going as fast as possible, and we were going closer and closer to the shore, but we hadn't um, gone up yet. Taken off, right? Taken off. And so I was getting really scared we were going to crash into into the shore, and so the pilot put the brakes on and said, well, there's too much weight, so we had to go back to the dock, and he threw out some of his cargo. Uh, Luckily, not our suitcases. (laughs) (laughs) And then we tried it again, and this time it, it worked, and we got up into the air and flew along, and he flew very close to the ground. It was a very flat ground. It was like tundra. I can remember there was just nothing to see for a hundred miles or whatever it was, and finally we saw this little speck of a village on the bank of the river, and we landed on the on the pontoons, um, and the whole village came running down to the dock you know, to greet us. <laughs> uh, we are the you know the new Vista volunteers, and they showed us to our cabin, and I can remember going in, and the first thing I saw was there must have been forty empty jars of peanut butter on the shelves on the wall that they had saved, saved the jars for some reason. I thought, oh my God, who could ever eat all this peanut butter? <laughs> and, um, and then I realized, you know, once the weather turned bad um, or turned cold, that you really crave things that are rich in fat fatty stuff like peanut butter because it keeps you warm. Right. Uh,
0: so you wound up eating that much peanut butter. Yes,
1: we were adding jar after jar. And and the first thing I did was to learn how to bake bread because you could only buy like stale bread that had come in, you know, the airplane had delivered bread from a, that was a week old or whatever, you know. So I learned how to make bread. And like every meal, we would have a um, hot, fresh made bread with uh, slathered with peanut butter and jelly. Yeah.
0: Know? What would you say was the most difficult adjustment to make?
1: Well, definitely the, the lack of stimulation. I mean, we were in a village of less than 100 people in the middle of nowhere. There was no TVs, no telephones. Um, the, the mail came once a week. Um, so we were cut off from the culture we were used to. And we had just come from college, where it was go, 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 and, you know, lots of things to do, parties and and weekend trips and whatnot. You never stop. Yeah, you never stop. And, um, of course, you know, with lots of media, computers, and um, I guess we didn't have computers back then, come to think of it. (laughs) (laughs) But we had phones, and we had TV, um, and radios and whatnot. So, anyway, that that was the biggest shock. Uh, It was just... um, there was no stimulation. I, I can remember just uh, sitting there and daydreaming for hours, you know, sort of doing flashbacks of of um, replays of my life. <laughs> uh, so that was the hardest thing to get used to, and just to settle in, you know, to a way of life that was very slow paced um, and uh, without a whole lot of variety.
0: That's interesting. If I could just kind of dive into that a little bit. So we do live in a, in a life now. I would say that's like the College that you described, where you just have constant simulations at all times to a point where it's overwhelming. Right. So, you joined folks who have lived their whole life in this more sort of slower environment. Right. Would you say that you brought that way of life back with you when you re entered, I guess, the go, go, go culture?
1: Well, um, I guess we were out there for maybe six months before we had to trip into um, Anchorage or wherever. And I can remember when I first saw a car you know, after being away from cars so long, it was so scary and it was so noisy. The cities were so noisy. But it didn't take me long to to rub back up again. Sure, <laughs> yeah, get
0: right back into it.
1: Right, exactly. <laughs> but it was um, it was a, kind of a, sh- a shock, um, you know, a real different pace.
0: Yeah. What would you say was your biggest takeaway from your time?
1: For sure it was the culture of the Eskimo people, which is not dissimilar from other indigenous uh, tribes, A culture of um, sharing and cooperation. And I I can remember one day when I heard a knock at my door and uh, opened it, and there was an Eskimo woman who was beckoning to me and saying, A seal party, seal party, come, come. So I followed her to find that a seal party was um, a tradition when a man caught his first seal in the spring. And usually that is after a very long, hard winter where people are hungry or whatever. That the tradition is that the wife would have a seal party and invite all the other women uh, to their home and they would uh, cut the seal meat up between all the families to, to share uh, the hunt, you know, with others. And so they still c- continue that tradition uh, today. And then after they've distributed the meat, they also uh, distribute anything that the family has accumulated, you know, during the, uh, the year uh, that uh, they don't need for survival. So it might be fabric or buttons or... Um, you know, and then at the end of the party, they, they throw bubble gum and hard candy up into the air. It's you know, <laughs> kind of a grand finale, and the women, you know, catch it in their skirts. Um, so it was a beautiful tradition, but it was symbolic of their way of life, um, which is that you share, um, you know, with each other, and that it was unheard of to accumulate more than your neighbors, um, you know, that you, you don't hoard. Um, you know, of course, it was just the opposite uh, of our culture, where we measure success by how much stuff you have. And the more you hoard the more you're admired where they they would think that would be abnormal behavior you know to be hoarding uh, more than than the others had um, so it was an eye-opener to me because it, it, it showed me that there was a different way of, of, of living and being there for a year and, and seeing the that the Eskimos were really the happiest people I've ever met um, they're always laughing and telling jokes and smiling and um, and I realized that their happiness, Of course, it was not based on money because they didn't have money Uh, or material possessions. Their their happiness came from a sense of security that community brings, you know, that it wasn't it's not about belongings. It's about belonging, you know, that they had a strong sense of belonging, belonging to their um, their village, belonging to the natural world. They knew their place in the web of life, you know.
0: So when the time came to come back to this world of individualism and materialism, did you even want to?
1: Well, at the time, I mean, I was, you know, I was 22 years old um, and had a different worldview than I do now at 71. Um, so these lessons that I, um, of, of my observations there didn't really sink in, you know, until four years later. Um, I, I couldn't articulate it in the way I'm, I am right now. Um, I probably wouldn't e- even have compared it to our culture, but it was it was in the back of my mind. And and I, I saw how it influenced me in later years. Um, but I didn't come back with saying, well, now I know the right way to live. You know, I've been in a society that lived this way and this is how I'm going to live. I mean, it wasn't like that. It was like I, I, I wasn't conscious of the effect on me um, at first.
0: Uh, That's interesting. So you came back and, correct me if I'm wrong, but... You and your husband talked about starting a business. Yes,
1: we at first we we're just looking for jobs, and so we would we uh, would get the Pittsburgh Post Gazette. That was the <laughs> the the paper um, in our hometown, and look in the help wanted section for possible jobs. And I thought maybe I wanted to social work because I wanted to do something good for people. I had no idea what social work really was, uh, and that you need to have a master's in social work, and that it would not have been something I would enjoy. <laughs> but um, it's all I could think of. And my husband uh, wanted to work in um, in film, um, TV production, that kind of thing. And, of course, again, it's very hard. Uh, entry-level position is, is wouldn't be that exciting. Right. So the idea of uh, starting a business was kind of a second thought. Actually, it was my idea because when I was little, I used to make things, um, uh, get scraps of wood from um, housing uh, construction sites and paint them. Um, and then I put them in my wagon and take my wagon down to the, to the highway. And I had a little sign that said, uh, something like handmade stuff or something like that. Yeah. Hand painted stuff. Stuff. At the time, uh, well, we looked around uh, our hometown for a place to have a, a, a business. I, and my idea was to start a store, uh, because I, I said, you know, it's really easy to start a store. You just buy something at one price and you sell it for a higher price. So, you know, we could easily do this. And so we started looking for a place to have a store. Uh, and beyond that, well, my concept was I, I wanted to have uh, what would be like a general store because I liked the idea of convening people. You know, the, the image of a general store in the old days was something that um, was very positive in my mind. You know, a place where everybody would come to buy supplies of different sorts um, and that there would be a mixture. Uh, it wouldn't just say, all will be clothes or I'll be food or I'll be books or whatever it would be a general store that had all the all the things that someone in that particular village would would want to have
0: and it sounds like you were aiming for something that was also somewhat social too
1: well social in that it would gather people yeah right. you'd get together right. and see your neighbors right yeah like the old time general store you'd see like photographs or paintings of it and people would be sitting around a potbelly a stove you know shooting the shit yeah exactly <laughs> exactly uh so you'd come in to buy you know a bag of flour and you'd sit down and talk for a while Uh, So that was what I was envisioning. And and when we finally did start the store, we we had a couch and a chair, you know, by the checkout area so that that people could actually sit down and and talk. And then we had a a bulletin board for community announcements. Um, So, you know, the the general store concept had a limitation to it, which was that we being at that point, I guess, 23 years old, wanted to um, have our our customers be our age. So it was a, a store for people under 30. And as um, children of the 60s, we talked about not trusting anyone over 30. So, this was going to be a store for people under 30. And quite frankly, that's all we could uh, manage because we could only buy what we wanted to uh, have. Like, that was our, our, our knowledge, was in what we wanted, what our age group wanted. You know, so we went about. Uh, Buying things for the store that that we liked, you know, T-shirts and and jeans, you know, um, dangly earrings, um, beads, um, Mexican glassware, uh, frisbees, uh, counterculture books, um, records, the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, you know, um, Jimi Hendrix, you know. (laughs) Then uh, my husband's college roommate put in a little money and joined us in the store. We opened the store at $3,000. And then a, a little bit after we opened the store, his friend who was going to Wharton joined us and I think put in uh, $500 or something, became a partner in the business and, and an advisor, so to speak. And so he was talking about like a, a lost leader, you know, that you sell something popular at a really low price to draw people in and then hopefully they'll buy other things. And so, uh, records were our lost leader. We sold records at cost at $2.75 for an album long playing out L- on an LP. And that would get all the college students at Penn interested in coming into the store.
0: So let's back it up to when, I believe it was your business partner who suggested that you open the store in Philadelphia because oh, he was yes. at Wharton. Is that right? right?
1: Exactly. I, I skipped that part. After we looked around Pittsburgh for our location and nothing really spoke to us, we went to visit the friend in, in Philadelphia. And while we were there, we told him about our idea for the store. He said, well, you should start some store here uh, because there's not a, a store like that for the Penn students where he was going to school. So, yes, he suggested that we do the store there. And while we were there visiting him, we went and found a storefront. Oh, right and then so, and there. Right, there. right then and there. Wow. <laughs> and um, so we couldn't afford to rent an apartment and a storefront, so we just rented the storefront and lived in the back of the store. And um, But there wasn't a, a bathroom, so we would go over to uh, the, our friend's house to take showers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we had a toilet. We had a toilet and we had a sink. <laughs> right. Like a small kitchen. Um, we had a, like a toaster oven and a refrigerator. Uh, and a kitchen sink. And then there was a small bathroom that actually was also the dressing room for the store. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Where the toilet was. <laughs>
0: so you couldn't have one customer using the restroom and one customer trying on clothes at exactly. the same time.
1: Exactly. <laughs> so,
0: so it sounds like you approached the idea of up and moving and starting a business in Philadelphia as you did moving to Alaska. Just, yep, okay, makes sense. Is that
1: right? Right, exactly, <laughs> wow. exactly. Wow. Yeah, and we we really uh, uh, didn't know much um, except like what what we wanted to buy and so we bought all those things and uh we were the same age as the college students and yeah. that's what they wanted to buy so it was made sense
0: now did the store achieve that sort of community social vibe that you had originally set out absolutely. for
1: absolutely we had um a red couch um you know uh next to the checkout uh, a counter and there was almost always at least one person sitting there if not three or four you know oh, yeah. Um, and, uh, and if there's no one there our dogs would lie on the couch <laughs> so there was always uh, uh, tra- chatter going on and and we had a big uh, bulletin board right next to the couch on the wall across from that next to the door so we would let people put up signs about a peace demonstration it was the Vietnam war was still going on um, or a babysitting co-op or a food co-op or just you know whatever the issues were um, and and all these different pieces of paper up here uh, you know with people trying to connect with each other uh, gave us the idea of uh, starting a non-profit publishing company with um, a resource book that we called the Whole City Catalog. So we started that non-profit. Um, so we had both the for-profit and the non-profit operating out of the store. Uh, because I, we saw, coming from a small town, everybody already knows every, everybody in town and what's going on. But in a city, it was different. Like, it was so big and there's so, many, so much going on. that, uh, And we were surprised that there was no place that people could uh, look um, to be connected um, with issues. You know, it had, there was like civil rights, there was peace, um, there was education, there was arts and culture, um, you know, the different chapters. And then within those would be all different groups from grassroots up through city, state, federal government of resources for in that particular area.
0: So the store was successful. It wasn't too long though until you decided it was time to move on, correct?
1: Right. My husband was my boyfriend from um, in fifth grade. That's when we met. <laughs> we were 10 years old. You know, what had been attractive to, to me at the time um, changed, and I, I guess it was really my coming into my own uh, that having grown up in the 50s, we didn't really pay much attention, girls didn't, to careers or whatever. You know, the whole idea was to marry somebody that would be successful because, you know, you're just gonna be a housewife. And so I can remember the day when I decided I was going to marry my husband, and that's when we were in fifth grade. And um, the gym teacher, I, I loved to play baseball, and my dad loved to play baseball, and I was the oldest child. And even though I was a girl, he taught me how to play, and I had my own mitt, and he would pitch to me, and I would teach me how to hit and all that kind of stuff. And I, I, I loved, it. I loved um, softball, and I was a I was a nut for the Pittsburgh Pirates. You know, I <laughs> watched all the games and kept their batting averages on the, uh, on my wall of my bedroom. And I had 8 by 10 glossy color pictures of all the Pittsburgh Pirates and so on. So I was crazy about baseball. And so I can remember in fifth grade when the gym teacher said, um, well, it's a nice day out there, let's start, start softball practice. So I'm like leaping on my chair, like ready to go. And then he said, okay, uh, guys down to the field, girls, you go over there and practice cheerleading somewhere. And I just was, I couldn't believe it. Like, my mouth was hanging open. But I didn't know enough to um, object. Like to, nowadays, you'd be sued for that because you can't discriminate in that way. So I can remember being so despondent, and I refused to cheerlead, but I, I stood behind the backstop, like, watching the guys play. And I can still remember, like, hanging on the wire of the backstop, you know, like, watching the guys play. And so, you know, I bought into this because so much in our culture was saying that girls were second class, you know. Um, so I just decided, well, if I can't play baseball, I'm gonna marry the best baseball player. So I chose him that day, and I can remember going back to my, uh, my desk, and we had those desks that's gonna flip open, and took out my tablet. I crossed off Judy Wicks on my tablet, and started writing Mrs. Richard Hayne, Mrs. Richard Hain all over my tablet, because that's who I decided I would marry. And that is who I married. But it was that fifth grade impulse um, and, and reasons for marrying. And so but then, you know, when we were married, things changed. Like I, I started realizing that I had abilities, you know, and um, he and um, his friend from college uh, would exclude me from things like I'd, I'd ask about, you know, how much money was in the bank. And he would say, don't you worry your pretty little head about that. I mean, literally, I mean, like, the, you know, like this is kind of like 1950s talk. Um, and so. I started getting upset about that, like they they wouldn't include me. The, the, the two of them would go off and talk business um, and not even tell me what was going on. My husband would just say, here's $1,000, go to New York and buy things. So I did a majority of the buying, but yet I was treated like I was, you know, an employee.
0: So you decided that it was time to move on?
1: Yeah, I I, I wanted to find out um, whatever happened to that little girl named Judy Wicks who I would crossed off my tablet. I didn't want to be Richard, Mrs. Richard Hayne anymore. It was a childhood dream that uh, I realized was not really what I wanted.
0: So that business that we've been talking about was the Free People Store.
1: Yes, Free People Store.
0: And after you and Richard split, which we'll talk about in a second, it would become Urban Outfitters. Right. One of the, you know, biggest brands in Philadelphia.
1: Right. In the world, really. In the world, yeah. So, (laughs) So
0: how have you felt watching that growth over time?
1: Well, you know um i I really disconnected uh, from it because i I became so busy with my own work I mean I, I you know it's kind of amazing uh, you know we we stayed on good terms and at one point, um, you know after I got into the restaurant business, my uh, ex-husband uh, even asked me if I wanted to do a restaurant in conjunction with with the store, which i I wasn't interested in, in doing but um you know i never held grudge a, a grudge against them or anything like that i mean like we are, are we just took different paths
0: so what was that moment like when you left
1: well um it was very difficult first of all because um i i felt very um bad you know about breaking up the marriage and you know I, I, no one in my family had been divorced i thought this was like a terrible thing i just couldn't stand it any longer but the the, the trouble is i i couldn't articulate it to my husband um you know this was before women's lib um and you know, the idea of, um, you know, feminism or women's rights, whatever you want to call it, it, it really wasn't out there. Um, I mean, it was just begin- beginning, uh, I guess, the 70s. it, it did Women's Lib did start in the 70s, but it, it really wasn't clear to me. I didn't know how to articulate these issues. I just knew that I that it made me feel bad, and I felt smothered. I felt confined. I felt uh, that I, I needed to be free. Um, and... Um, so it was hard because I couldn't articulate to him why I was leaving. I just told him I, I, just had to go. Um, and so I decided I would start off by visiting my grandparents in Florida. So I was going to uh, drive the car that we owned together, um, which he, um, kindly was allowing me to, to use. And I got like a half a block away from the store and went through a red light because I was in such a hurry. I was, I guess I was so upset um, and no one was hurt, but I got—I had, I had a collision.
0: Oh my God! Um, a block so, away. A
1: block away. Wow! So um, there was a man walking down the sidewalk, and he said, "Oh, may, uh, may I help you help you home with, with your bags?" And I said, "No, I've just left my husband. You know, my bags are packed, and I have to keep going." But now I've had to find a job um, to pay for the car. And he said, well, I work in a restaurant and I know there's an opening as a, as a waitress. And I said, OK, I'll take it. You know? <laughs> oh my and gosh. Uh, so now when people ask me, how did you get into the restaurant business? I always say by accident. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Oh,
0: man. So, so that was your first foray into the restaurant business. Now, it wasn't in too long until you were managing that restaurant. Is that right? Right.
1: I had never even been a waitress before. I'd been like a cocktail waitress, but I didn't know how like, to open a bottle of wine or anything. So I was terrible. But meanwhile, I, I was still, even though I left the store, I still wanted to work on the whole city catalog. So I was uh, working on that. So I only worked part-time as a waitress to support myself while I was working on the catalog. The place was in disarray, the restaurant, and the owner was living in Boston. He had gone to uh, graduate school in Boston and he had hired a new manager and everything was falling apart. So um, the cashier actually suggested to the owner, you should just fire the manager and make Judy the manager because she ran her own store. And he asked me if I would do that. And I said, well, I would do it for two weeks, um, you know, because I had just finished uh, the whole city catalog and sent it to the printer. But after two weeks, I wanted to focus on selling the, selling the, the catalog in the bookstores and whatnot. So he flew down to Philadelphia, fired the manager, hired me, and flew back to Boston. And then all of a sudden, I had been promoted from waitress to general manager. Just like that. Just like that. There was like, you know, 50 employees, a 200-seat restaurant. And it was 130, come to think of it. It was a long time ago. At this point, this was 1974. Um, So anyway, that's a whole other story. But I I learned the restaurant business um, by fire, you know, (laughs) thrown into the swimming pool. And so 10 years after that, um, I started The White Dog.
0: Right, so you decided that you wanted to have your own restaurant.
1: Actually, what happened is I, had a, I became a partner in the business uh, because the owner wasn't around at all. I mean, I ran everything myself and, and, and brought it from a, a $200,000 a year business to a $2 million a year business, and I was highly successful. And so one of my customers actually asked me if I had a piece of the action, and I said, you know, I hadn't thought about that. And he said, well, you should demand that. And so I did, and so I was promised that I would have an ownership stake, um, and then eventually, um, when the owner finished school and came back, he wanted to run it himself. So he, he just forced me out of the business. He said, you know, um, your, your share of nothing is nothing. He had taken all the money out of the restaurant. And anyway, it's a long story, but I all of a sudden didn't have a, have a job and didn't have a business. But in the meantime, I, I, I did have a house. Um, I had, uh, joined the community group to, um, keep the houses from being torn down and we won the fight. And I was given the opportunity to buy my house, which I I did. So I decided to start a, um, a restaurant on the first floor of my house.
0: Yeah, so you started the White Dog Cafe, which right. started as a muffin and coffee shop, correct?
1: Exactly in 1983.
0: And day one, what did you have in mind for the for the store? Did you did you think that it would become <laughs> as big as it became, or did you think that it would you know just stay a coffee shop for a long time?
1: Well, no, I wanted it to be a restaurant, and I wanted to to beat. Um, my ex-partner ah. down the street. So you,
0: I, you had designs on it, a big uh,
1: Yeah, I, I wanted it to be a full-service restaurant. I just had to start with what I could afford. Um, and um, so started with muffins and coffee, and then we grew very quickly. I added soup and sandwiches that I had learned to make in the Eskimo village. Those are the two things I knew how to make, right bread and soup. <laughs> and so... Uh, that's what we served for lunch was homemade bread with a uh, homemade soup. Um, and then you know I got to the point where I could afford to hire a chef. And we, our first kitchen was a charcoal grill in the backyard because we couldn't afford the exhaust um, system up to the house. Um, and so we cooked on the back um, charcoal grill in the backyard and the, the waiters would go down to the basement, out the back door to pick up the food. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> so we started, you know, we, it was really scrappy. I was, uh, I, had, I was married a second time to an architect and he bought the house next door to me uh, because he was also involved with the community group that saved the buildings from being torn down. So he bought the house next door and we fairly quickly uh, expanded into the second house. And then he, d- he designed an addition on the back, which we, we built Um, And uh, anyway, eventually we got up to uh, having a restaurant with 200 seats.
0: Wow. So a fully fledged restaurant. Now, was it always, quote unquote, sustainable at that point? Or was that a discovery that you made?
1: In terms of the food? Yeah. Um, Well, I always wanted to buy from local farms because that's how I was raised in the small town and. Pennsylvania, my parents had a big vegetable garden, and my mother also would go to the farmer's markets to buy produce, and she would uh, preserve things for the winter. Um, She'd make stewed tomatoes, so our storage room would just be full of glass jars of tomatoes, and um, corn, she'd take it off the husks and and freeze bags of corn, and green beans from our garden, she would uh, freeze. And um, so, you know, I grew up... um, loving fresh local food and that was simply prepared by my mother and my father often would uh, charcoal grill uh, steaks and so on so I wanted to have a charcoal grill in the restaurant uh, so we started with with charcoal grill in the backyard and would we made chish kebabs because that was my, my mother's uh, Betty's kebabs um, uh, using my mother's marinated uh, marinate uh, recipe and uh, with chunks of beef with you know fresh vegetables and so on that we grilled and we had a, a grilled fish of the day and um Grilled vegetables with hummus for a vegetarian platter, and and my brother brother John's chicken, which was my brother's recipe, and uh, that and that's how we started.
0: Nowadays, it's more commonplace for farm-to-table type restaurants, but that wasn't the case at this point. Correct? No,
1: no. Uh, American food. I wanted to have an American restaurant because I had just spent ten years in a French restaurant, and I was kind of tired of all those heavy sauces, the you know, Bernays and sauce and. Uh, so on. And I, I, I just wanted to have, you know, healthy, fresh food. I want to have hot fudge sundaes and root beer floats because those are my favorite desserts. <laughs> and we had those on the menu. So um, at that point, I would go down to the food distribution center, uh, which is where I went when I was at the French restaurant to buy fresh produce. Um, and we, we, I didn't know farmers that could deliver to me in the very beginning. But I'd go down to the food distribution center to, to buy um, vegetables and stuff. Uh, and fish also from down there, and um, so around uh, right after we opened, I can't remember what year it was. Um, there was a uh, Time magazine cover story about Alice Waters in California, and it, it, she had started the uh, kind of the local food revolution. Um, and she was buying from local farmers in California. And of course, in California, you can buy year round from local farmers in terms of the vegetables, unlike Philadelphia. But, um, she really started this trend you know if you want it's not a trend, it was actually a shift <laughs> you know the yeah, permanent shift, right, yeah. But we kind of caught the wave of that popularity because all of a sudden people were interested in local food, um uh, which they hadn't been before up until that point. Good restaurants were French restaurants or Italian restaurants um you know there was no such thing as American cuisine other than hamburgers and french fries and milkshakes or you know steak and potatoes that was it, so Alice really popularized you know the new American cuisine, you know, California cuisine, uh, which was just, you know, based on fresh natural products with fresh herbs and, you know, not heavy sauces like the, like the French do. Right.
0: So you, you sold the White Dog Cafe in 2009. Yes. What made it time to move on?
1: Uh, well, um, by 2009, I had developed a lot of in, other interests. Um, it, buying from local farmers got me interested in local economies and, Um, So I I started uh, several nonprofits, Fair Fair Food, which was a nonprofit to connect the local farmers with the urban marketplace. Then I started the Sustainable Business Network Greater Philadelphia to network between locally owned businesses and all different industries, not just food, but uh, clothing and other local products. Uh, And then I also started a national uh, nonprofit called Bali, the Business Alliance for Local Living Economies. So my attention was really uh, diverted from my own business to building economies. Over time, I started doing more and more public speaking, and I was invited to go to communities all around the country and even in Europe to talk about local economies. And so all this was moving me away from the business. And so... I began to realize that I was away so much that I I didn't have enough information to make sound decisions. Like uh, it used to be that I would hear everybody's side uh, if there was a problem, and then I would determine what the solution was after hearing everybody's opinion, because I I, I had all the facts. But a problem came up, I can't even remember what it was, and I asked everybody what their opinion was, everybody had different opinions, and I realized I couldn't make the decision because I didn't know, I wasn't around enough to really understand what the problems were. Um, and so that's the moment which I realized I had to sell.
0: So when you sold, though, you there was a stipulation in the contract of sale that the White Dog Cafe would still locally source yes. its ingredients and foods. Right. Why was that important that that particular restaurant would continue to do that when you were, you know, you had moved on to whole economies?
1: Right. Well, um, first of all, I, I really wanted the White Dog to continue to be a model and in, in, in buying from local farmers. So. I came up with this idea, um, and it was prompted because the copyright or trademark um, for a white dog came up for renewal with a federal organization, whatever it's called. So it's a a 10-year, you have to renew it every 10 years. And so when I renewed it, I put the ownership of the the trademark in my name personally rather than in the corporate name. Uh, And I wasn't really sure exactly why I was going to do that. I just knew that the name White Dog Cafe um, was so personal to me, you know, that it was my, it was kind of like my personal brand in a sense. And I didn't want anyone else to own my, my brand. (laughs) Uh, And, and so then it occurred to me the next year when I decided to sell that I could keep ownership of the name. I could sell the business, but not the name. And so then I consulted with a friend, and I said, you know, I want to lease the name to the new owners, and how would I go about that? And he said, that's called licensing. That's not leasing. That's a licensing agreement, and you need to find a licensing lawyer, you know, to write this up. So I found a buyer, so I sold the corporation, uh, and then uh, had a a licensing agreement for them to license the name White Dog, and part of that was a social contract that required them that as long as they use the name White Dog Cafe, that they uh, had to buy from local farmers, uh, that you know, at least the same percentage that we were buying from local farmers, all the meat had to be um, from um, local family farms and not from factory farms. Um, in other words, free range chickens, free range eggs, pastured pork, grass-fed beef and dairy. And that was the thing that was most important to me. And then there were other things as well, um, fair trade, um, chocolate, vanilla, cinnamon, coffee, tea, 100% renewable electricity, uh, all the different sustainable practices that we had developed over the years, I, I put into the contract. He didn't accept everything I wanted, but it was, it, the most important things were in the in the contract and in, it included that they couldn't start other white dogs unless they were within 50 miles of his residence. The oh, primary so you didn't owner. want this to be a chain? I didn't want it to place. be a chain, right? So I wanted to be place based. Um, now that agreement runs out, you know, after a certain amount of uh, um, licensing fees have been collected by, from from me. Um, So in a sense, it was an arrangement that was good for both parties, because for him, he paid less up front, because the value of the restaurant is in the name. Because that was the other thing I kept was the ownership of the property. So I'm the landlord. Um, So that's how, in a sense, I was able to afford to retire. Uh, because I, I I had the rental income as the landlord.
0: So you've begun quite a few different business organizations. One of the other ones that I think you alluded to earlier was the Circle of Aunts and Uncles. Oh yeah. Uh-huh. Can you talk about that? You've said that that's the opposite of Shark Tank.
1: Right. Exactly. What does that mean? Okay. Well, you know, um, in Shark Tanks, um, entrepreneurs uh, compete to try and get investment. Um, and with the Circle of Aunts and Uncles, we try to create more of a a family-like atmosphere, um, and who are really um, there for are entrepreneurs that don't have uh, aunts and uncles and mothers and fathers that have money to loan them. Um, And like when I started The White Dog, I I got a loan from my mother, I got a loan from my grandmother, I got a loan from my father-in-law, and uh, before I was eligible for bank money. Uh, And that's how most entrepreneurs start, family and friends money, it's called. Um, so when I realized that there's entrepreneurs that have great ideas, they work hard, and so on, but they don't have those family connections, not just for the money, but also for the advice and the, the connections with other resources, social capital resources. So um, I started the aunts and uncles after I sold uh, the white dog because I wanted to give back in this way, you know. And I still, you know, ultimately my goals are around building a, a local economy. So I wanted to help the entrepreneurs that are building our local economy in the Philadelphia area. In other words, entrepreneurs that, were, that had food enterprises that were uh, buying their supplies from local farmers. So when I loan to an entrepreneur that's buying from a local farmer, it's not only helping him, but it's helping the farm. It's helping the system, like our local system. So um, that was three years ago. We have 40 aunts and uncles that uh, put money into the pot, and then we have uh, 12 entrepreneurs at this point who have borrowed money from us. We've loaned about $110,000. And, um, it's, it's going, it's going great and it's, and it's fun. And I, I, I just really love being engaged with these young entrepreneurs, the millennials. You know?
0: <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned how, though you couldn't articulate it at the time, you rejected the, the reality that the patriarchy had prescribed to you back, you know, when you were in your early twenties and your first marriage. And since then you've, you've built businesses, you've started organizations. You've been an example as a businesswoman and as a consumer as well. If you look at, you know, your, your home in Philadelphia, that's, I believe, 100% solar powered, was it?
1: this um, uh, Yeah, I mean, it's not 100% solar. I have solar on my roof. I use as much solar as I can produce. And then what I do buy from the grid is 100% solar. Right.
0: So today, the society, at least that we live in, in Philadelphia, is much more cognizant of, uh, you know, the patriarchy and the biases that are there. But there's obviously a very, very long way to go. Do you have any advice for young women nowadays who have those designs, who have those dreams, who feel like they're being held from them?
1: Well, I guess the most important thing is to believe in yourself. You know, um, when I get an idea, I figure out how to do it. You know, I don't question myself. I just, you know, I just do it. You know?
0: <laughs> just do it. <laughs>
1: uh, right. I guess that's Nike or something. Right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and um, I think a lot of people hold back because they're like afraid that they're not capable or they're not worthy or, you know, whatever. And I think that women don't have enough role models perhaps uh, as well. Uh, and, and oftentimes girls aren't taught to be assertive and, and go for it uh, in the way that guys are. And um, I just think it's really important to actualize um, our our ideas, you know, that that's really where uh, meaning and fulfillment come from, is from actualizing uh, your ideas uh, using your own values.
0: Yeah. If you could send a message, whether an email, a text message, tweet, billboard, anything, any sort of message that every Philadelphian would receive and be able to ponder, what would you say?
1: (laughs) I would say let's uh, work cooperatively to build a strong and just local economy um, where we produce our basic needs uh, regionally, uh, in particular food, fuel, and fiber. Um, And if we shift our buying power away from distant corporations to our locally owned businesses that will shift wealth um, and, and power and jobs, from corporations to our community, will grow community wealth. Um, that every time we buy from a chain store, or even if we buy from a local store that's selling products that are corporate-produced, that money is leaving our community. Um, so, you know, to have these local supply chains, um, you know, and the aunts and uncles, we we loan to uh, we have loans to the a butcher, a baker, and three ice cream makers. You know, <laughs> and all of them uh, buy from local farmers. Um, and so, you know, the more we can invest um, in local business businesses um, and b- build these local supply chains, um, uh, the more uh, wealthy our community will be as a whole and um, more opportunities for our young people to start businesses, to find meaningful jobs. Um, and it's also more joyful. Um, you know, it's a joy to know the butcher, the baker and the, and the ice cream makers, you know, to know who Oh, oh, Sews your clothes and know who bakes your bread and brews your beer um, these are the foundations for happy community life um, so if everybody in philadelphia bought local what a difference it would make
0: judy's book good morning beautiful business goes way deeper into her story and includes a piece that we only touched upon lightly White Dog, Black Cat, and maybe even parts of the farm-to-table movement in Philly would probably not have happened if Judy didn't lay down in front of a bulldozer and save her block of Spruce Street from being bulldozed and replaced by a strip mall. For a link to the book or how to find Judy online, you can head to podphillywho.com forward slash That's W-I-C-K-S. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and give it a rating on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow along on Instagram and Twitter at PodPhillyWho. Philly Who is a Q9 production. Music by Lee Rosevier, podcast art by Lauren Carhart. For Philly Who, my name is Kevin Schmidlin. I'll see you next week.